Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with the newly minted in 2023 Teos Abadia. Welcome to 2023, Teos. <laughs> newly minted. I like that. Uh, yeah, I feel like a collectible yeah. item. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You were. You were. Uh, you were printed uh, recently. Uh, cloned, maybe. A souvenir plate. Looking good. A, uh... A gold standard, a gold mm -hmm. coin, and is how I feel. You know, I don't feel like a gold coin. Yeah, the my, Franklin my, Mint. I just finished driving my my daughter to the airport, so so we're we're going through that. But it was really nice to have her home. Oh, I took down my Christmas yeah. lights, the exterior ones yesterday, and I think the tree's gonna have to follow. So it all feels very end of yeah. an era ish. I I guess I am a little newly minted in that respect. A lot change. Okay. Well, we. We we will we will get you right into the flow of things here, so as not to trigger any nostalgia or or any you know looking back. We're going to be looking forward here, and we're going to start with our tweet bag tweet bag Patreon missive, and we're just going to do one today because it's a pretty beefy one, um, and it comes from one of our patrons, Chappy Thoughts, who says if wizards change the rules so that hitting zero hit points doesn't render you unconscious. <clears throat> but injured instead, at least until you fail three saving throws. While injured, are you limited to a single, or while injured, you would be limited to a single basic attack, a cantrip, dodge, or disengage. That seems like it would solve some of the yo-yoing, would make DMs more comfortable being a little bit more ruthless, and would make the countdown we get now with death saves a bit more interesting. And, you know, this is a very interesting idea, and I love this mm -hmm. because it shows uh, how complicated a machine these 5e rules are and how important playtesting and understanding the game is. Uh, so I wanted, Teos, is it okay with you if we dig a little deeper into this? I love it. And, and talk about this in terms, not necessarily in terms of what Chappie Thoughts said or suggests, but what it means in terms of game design to to think about things in this way. Yeah. All set? set. Okay. So on previous shows, we uh, we say that, you know, rules can do a lot of things. And one of the things they do is they create an experience at the table. Uh, so we talked about in the previous episode, the you are no different at one hit point than you are at full hit points. Mm -hmm. And this is done purposefully. Game designers did not want an experience where you were less effective at fewer hit points or even more effective at fewer hit points because mm -hmm. they could have done any of that when they designed the game. So what Chappie Thoughts asks about is, to simplify this, creating a new condition. He used, uh, he, I assume Chappie's a he, used the, the term injured. So let's call this condition injured. So to turn uh, this into a rule, we would say that while you are injured or you are injured when you are at zero hit points, but not stable and therefore making death saves. While you are injured, as the question states, it would let you take some sort of limited action or a limited set of actions on your turn. What's the goal of this? It would replace the unconscious condition that you are currently in while you're at zero hit points, but not stable because you are able to do nothing except make those death saves. And the goal would then be to potentially make the game, quote, more interesting. So, Chappie, please take everything we're about to say 
not as, as no offense whatsoever yeah, yeah because you actually ask a great question mm -hmm. and this is something that every single game designer should be asking themselves about 10,000 times over the course of creating a game system so the questions are is there a problem with the way things currently are does what i'm going to do to change that fix the problem that we've we've identified and does this proposed fix create other problems. So let's take a look at what what Chappie Thoughts is saying in terms of these questions. So is there a problem with the way things currently are? You're going to get a variety of answers depending on who you ask. So we need to identify who we're changing this for. Are we changing it for new players, for existing players, for you know advanced players, for players that like more story-based things, who are we changing it for? Who would be benefiting from that? Uh, if you have any thoughts here, Teos, I've been talking for a while. So yeah, well, I, I'll add a couple. Yeah, I think it's a great question to ask, you know, what is the problem? And, and the problem could be identified as many different things depending on who you ask. So one problem could be that uh, when I reach zero, I'm not doing anything, right? Uh, to which, you know, 5e has said, well, you are, we gave you the rolling a death save on your turn. And that is, you know, when you ask yourself why it works that way, the, the point of it is to give you something to do as compared to previous editions where you just waited for somebody to maybe heal you. Now you're making these death saving throws. This gives you uh, opportunities. It gives you some peril, right? Because you could hit three negatives. Uh, it could give you some amazing highs of hitting a 20 and being able to actually take your turn with a single hit point. Um, or it might just be sort of back and forth on this, am I stable, am I not track? And that's what they've done. That, that's been the 5e solution, right, to the problem. Uh, so, you know, is there still a problem? It's gonna depend on who you ask, like you said. And that's gonna depend on to what extent you think the, the person who's down should be more engaged. Um, or is it that there is something else at work uh, that we identify as the problem, right? Should should people be down more often? Is that the problem instead? Is it that um, when you recover, a lot of people say this, when I recover from having been down, I, I'm right back to normal. Should I not be such that the penalty of going down lasts forward into the game, right? So there are a lot of things that people might assess. And I'll turn it back to you, Sean. Yeah, and so my, my question then would go to if if making the game more interesting is our goal, I would say that giving players who are at zero hit points and therefore have this injured capability uh, to, to still take actions while you're making death saves um, definitely adds things for players to do. Mm -hmm. However, the game is balanced so that it expects you when you are at zero hit points and unconscious and making death saves to not be able to do anything as part of the challenge of the game. So if you add this injured status so people who are at zero are able to still do things like attack, then the game is going to be easier in terms of the overall uh, strength of you know the dm's ability to challenge you versus your ability to deal with those challenges yeah. so right then 
people who say the, the the game is too easy. I can't challenge the players enough based on these rules. Now you're going to have to make another adjustment in the game by adding this. And um, and just to point that and, out, right? So with this injured condition allowing a single basic attack, um, a cantrip, uh, some classes are perfectly happy using cantrips round after round. And so for some classes, mm -hmm. this is no penalty at all. And for other classes, it may be a huge problem because a single basic attack uh, prevents all of the things that they normally do to be effective, right? So, so that mm -hmm. right there is another thing that our solution doesn't apply equally to all character classes, all players, and that might be a big problem, right? Right. Uh, I was, that was my next point. Right? <laughs> Rogues who can get sneak attack, they're fine with just a normal attack. Now, basic attack was a, was a rule in fourth edition yeah. that uh, was, was put in to let characters do these amazing things and then give them sort of a limited set of things. And that was their basic attack. So things like opportunity attacks could just be a basic attack or extra attacks you might be given by some power could have been basic attacks. Mm -hmm. So as Teo said, you, you, you are making it uneven in terms of what different classes or different builds might be able to do then. Yeah, if you're telling um, me I another, can only use to toll, toll the Dead every single round, I'm not crying. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, another thing to to be aware of in this is the more uh, the more mechanics you you add to a system, the more likely is there will be one optimal choice that will be the thing that everyone does because it's the best thing to do. Now, I'm not saying that's the case here. Play right. testing would bear out whether that's true. But it may be if you allow people to drink potions with their action, then that's what everyone's going to do. Mm -hmm. um, or it could be like uh, if you if you narrow it down to you can only take these four actions, right? Dodge, uh, disengage, or help. Everyone will realize that help is the best action. And everyone will always be helping unless there is a very specific thing. So it turns into this rote. It's, it, it's not more interesting then. It's right. just, it's one more thing that everyone knows the, the right answer to. So as an example, and this just is something I'm just thinking that um, disengage is one of the options provided here as an idea. And it may be that then what becomes the obvious thing to do is to say, well, I'm going to, or sorry, uh, Oh, I, I was thinking it was um, uh, what's what's the default def defense version? Um, dodge. Uh, yeah, dodge. Okay, so it, it is on those dodge. dodge. So I could take dodge, yeah. and now yeah. what I could do is that because I can't get worse, I'm just gonna go back into the dodge state, right? Like like my next round, if I get downed, I'm not gonna be dead dead. I'm gonna be injured again, which I already am. Nothing here at least is telling me I can't be injured again. So. I could just take dodge again because what's the worst that could happen? And I'm just soaking up hits, right? Or maybe being missed entirely. So right. dodge may be a really effective thing to do when you're injured because of this sort of state, at least until you get close to your third saving throw. And then you might be like, okay, I'm going to stop that now. But initially, that may be a really smart move to do. And do you want that kind of behavior, right? And, and that, is, that is some of the problem with this, which is why a lot of times I think that when... We have situations like this 
it's actually great when DMs house rule it because they can play around with this for a while and see what they like or don't like and change it at will, you know, do it one way for one campaign, another way for another. And that becomes almost more effective than when Wizards tells you, here's what the rules are going to do to make it meatier, right? To make it more defined, more, more specific. Right. I mean, one of the, just thinking this through, one of the things that I would do if I was designing something like this would be to start with the least possible path forward that would possibly add interest to the, to the game while doing the least amount of damage. Mm -hmm. So something like you can move, but that's all you can do. Yeah. Or you can only help. That gives, right. That gives the players this move, give the player something to do other than roll their death save. Um, they can tactically figure out where do I need to be to be in the best position to get healed or to get away from 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 things. So, you know, that's something that if I was designing this, I would start with that, play test it, see what players say. Does this make the game more interesting? Does it add too much? One of the great things about just doing a death save is combat moves much faster. Yeah. Uh, you're not you're not getting there's one less player to sit there and try to figure out what exactly to do and the best way to do it. And so I like that about not having the player who's unconscious be able to do anything. It's just death save. Yeah. Did you get a one? Did you get a 20? Fail or save? No. Boom. Next player. And I love running quick games. So I actually like that about um, the unconscious condition. Particularly if we're coming close to a failure state, right? If we're coming close to a total party kill or a we must negotiate with the monsters situation because we're being overwhelmed, we're out of our league, you know, two two characters are down. You want to kind of focus on the parts that are really going to make a difference. And so in theory, I would say thematically, uh, concept-wise, you would want this injured state to not be, you know, this is how you get out of a TPK. Because otherwise it doesn't matter much. If it's, if it's as powerful as a character, it's not really an injured state, right? So the people who are down should almost not do much or do very little towards getting out of that failure state. And it should be the other characters that do things like cast that healing spell, use that cool magic item, do whatever that turns it back into a success state. And if you dwell too much on the failure state rounds, you're taking away from that, right? And you're bogging it down in what won't feel like a failure state. It'll just feel like the game in general, right? And, and that would happen if someone's just doing basic attacks and taking dodge actions. It's like they're still doing full rounds. So then the TPK state, I don't even know what it looks like and, and how do you get there? And it would never feel that way, right? But when you're at a table and three players' turns are all skipped because they're just rolling saving throws, you know it's down to the rest of you, right? <laughs> and that the, and the action is all yeah. focused on that. Right. And yeah, and that's another reason I love that uh, really quick round, the, the tension. It's like, okay, it's your turn. Boom, boom, boom. It's your turn again. What do you do as everyone mm -hmm. around you is bleeding? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah, this was just a very short, you know, couple minute look at one, you know, cool idea and it's taken cool. and, and really, you know, expounded upon like game designers, if they're actually designing a game, would.
So I hope that was helpful to to Chappy Thoughts and to everyone uh, out there who is interested in in game design. Yeah. And and I just want to add one more thing. So there. are we ready? Oh, you know, which is that yeah. sometimes you do an exception to something because there's a reason for it. And so, like organized play special events or uh, store events that we've worked on, we have sometimes added the "What if a player, if a if a player's character dies?" Because you, in a special event, you came really excited to be a part of it, and you don't want to die early and then not get to participate to be a part of this special event that you probably paid money for or made a big effort to show up. And so, in those situations, it's really good to think through what happens. Right? Should they get to play their ghost form? Should they get to play a minor, you know, a minion that's there, some kind of you know weak creature, like some kind of way to bounce back? Can make a lot of sense because of the type of event you have. And then you draw a box around it, say for this special event, because of the magic suffused in the area, here's what happens when you go down to zero, because you're specifically looking to keep players engaged. And that that's also a really valid way to approach design too, which is to put a big box around it, right? A, a hard box that limits it. For sure. Hey, if anybody has thoughts on that, feel free to uh, let us know on all of the places that we will talk about at the end of our show. So on to our news and commentary section. So last time we addressed the large open gaming license elephant in the room, and a second elephant has entered the room. As a rumored version of the OGL and then the actual copy of the OGL just a few minutes ago um, were leaked to the media, causing, of course, a bit of a kerfuffle. Um, you can go pretty much anywhere online and learn about this. We have a link in the show notes, and we'll probably add other links to the show notes as more stuff comes out. Um, but I, I do need to to just talk about it in, in the only way I can. Uh, because of multiple NDAs that I have in many areas, I really can't say anything substantial about any of this. I will say that... After we see how everything plays out, which could be a year from now, I, I will have things to say. Um, I love D&D. It's changed my life in ways that I can't even articulate. And I acknowledge that the game and the hobby have grown to this point in part because of the success of third-party creators. So I hope and pray and strongly believe that we will see a resolution where everyone can benefit from the growth of this joyful, amazing hobby, and spread the joy of role-playing games in D&D far and wide. Teos? Yeah, that's well said. Um, I have spoken just uh, last night, in fact. I was on the Baldman Games Twitch channel uh, discussing a number of things. We talked about the Open D&D playtest, and we talked about the OGL. And I, I pretty much said there everything that I could say at, at this time anywhere else. Um, and and I think it's worth acknowledging that this this issue has gotten very large, has gotten a lot of attention, uh, and it should. It it impacts a lot of people, or could impact a lot of people. And so I think that the discussion is is healthy to have. I mean, we we wish we weren't having to have this discussion in a lot of ways, but given that what's happened, I think it is very important for creators to think about these kinds of issues, right? Uh, understanding what licenses mean, what 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 can happen around licenses. These are important things for the community to to go through, given where we are. 
Um, I'm also very hopeful that we're going to find some good resolution. Um, there's a lot riding on it. So, so I really hope it happens. It's been a dark cloud for me over the whole week. And, and for a lot of people I talk to, it's been, you know, I have designer friends who aren't sleeping. I have designer friends who are like, oh, it'll all be fine. Uh, you know, it runs the gamut, but the majority of them are, you know, really quite affected by it. Uh, and think and trying to think through what they need to do to work if the environment changes. But, but we all hope that it will, uh, it'll, it'll end up in a good place and not, not around these areas that's been leaked. Um, so if, if, you know, if you're interested on the details of, of what I think you can, you can check out that Baldwin game, Baldwin games, Twitch channel, um, the recording that took place on the 8th, uh, of January that really captures everything there. Um, and, and we'll see, we'll, we'll stay tuned because I, I, you know, I think there'll be more information coming out. It's been a, a fast and furious week, but, but usually these, these kinds of issues take longer to settle out. In other Watsi news, there was a report from Bloomberg that Watsi has canceled at least five video game projects as it scales back its ambitions in the industry. Uh, Teos, I'm going to let you cover this because sure. you were the one that did the deep dive into this article. Yeah, so it's really fascinating because Bloomberg uh, quotes Watsi on this and says, and and so the Watsi rep has a, a bunch of language. A lot of it is very kind of business speak. Uh, you know, we're committed to using digital games. That there are some projects they're still doing, but that the, they've canceled you know a number of these. About 15 people will be laid off. And I think that number is as low as it is because a lot of the work is done with independent studios partnering with Wizards of the Coast. Um, and we've seen, you know, in the last few years, six game studios that Wizards of the Coast has built, right, or contracted with others to build. And that's, that's amazing on top of the other contract relationships they have for video games. So th there's been a huge investment here and all of it's now or at least some aspect of it is changing dramatically. And, and to, to show how kind of fluid this information is, um, there was a report that one of the games was uh, a game, a D&D game that's been talked about that Epic Path is creating for Wizards of the Coast. And the, the, the lead for this game said, you know, our game is not being canceled. We're actively hiring for this. And then the person who had written the article said, well, they told me your game is canceled. And they said, well, you better go back and confirm with your sources. And they said, we just did. We went back to our original source and to the Wizards of the Coast representative and we're told this game is canceled. And this person who's working on it is saying it's not. And so just that's the kind of thing that, you know, <laughs> somebody's wrong and it's, and it's a major problem that somebody's you know, not on the same page. Um, but even stepping away from that microcosm, the larger picture to me is one where, you know, Wizards of the Coast has said it, it it's as, as, as Magic becomes a $1 billion brand, they want D&D to become a $1 billion brand. And it's about 10 times short from that. And so to get there, you need big things, right? You can't just say, print twice the books. That doesn't get you there. You need a, some very large things to make that happen. Things like TV shows, like movies, like video games. And so if video games aren't working out, that's a worry. And if we're selling E1, the entertainment arm, then maybe, you know, it, it's just, it's one of those things where you, I get worried and I get worried in a very specific way. I get worried for the print game because you and I've worked at a lot of different companies. And one of the worst things is when everybody's working on one thing 
and and then you can be safe. You can do your thing, right? D and D can just make its books because the, it's all going to be carried by video games and huge licenses and things like that. But if somehow that radar turns back towards you and says, "Well, you're the answer. Make the books, you know, make ten times the revenue next year." How do you do that? <laughs> and I've had yeah. those uncomfortable situations at work. They're not fun at yeah. all. It's a really yeah. bad level of pressure. And so I hope that does not happen, right? I hope that we don't somehow turn to the books and say, hey, books, make me, you know, a billion dollar company because that's, a, you know, we're lucky that it's as high a revenue as it is now. It, right. It would be really unrealistic <laughs> yeah. to expect enormous amounts of gain beyond, you know, a very small, small gain off of what it already is. So. Yeah, we'll I mean, we've said it. We've said it before, right? The the growth, the explosion of D and D, is wonderful, and you know, the the focus on it is has been great. And with any you know, behind every silver lining, there is a cloud, and <laughs> yes. so navigating that cloud uh, is going to be an interesting uh, part of our hobby for the next few years. Yeah. And we'll we'll see what happens. <laughs> but you know, on the happier side of things, a, the Lego winner was announced. Dragon's Keep Journey's End by Bolt Builds is the winner. This is the one where the dragon is sit, sit standing or coming down this tower into the into the town below, and it will be a uh, it will go into development. And you will be able to purchase it at some point, it looks like. Yeah. Um, it may not be exactly as it is pictured uh, in in the winning uh, vote tabulation, but it's going to do it. Yeah, I mean, that was a really cool one. Uh, I mean, congratulations to anybody who got into the final round. That's an amazing achievement yeah. and an amazing amount of work. Uh, but yeah, this was definitely really cool. And I'm not a shocker to see it picked just because of all the things it pulls into the scene. Um, I will, of course, have to buy this <laughs> and build it. Oh, absolutely! Hopefully, there will be an adventure with it. That would be. Uh, oh my that would god! That would be the best. That would be the best. Yep. And last but not least, we wanted to remind everyone that Winter Fantasy is happening the first weekend of February in lovely, balmy Fort Wayne, Indiana, and tickets are now on sale. You can go to tabletop.events and look for winter fantasy number 47 there are tickets for the tales of myth Draenor adventures moonshine isles dragonlance you can get games with adventures league administrators there are non uh, al games ghostfire gaming is is running agents of the empire games esper genesis is running games the alien rpg uh, learn to play is happening and, and much much more so it really is a great convention it's not the easiest place to get to in the middle of or at the beginning of february in the middle of winter but you know just for you the bang for your buck in terms of being able to sit and play games uh it's yeah. a wonderful time yeah, it's so a really I cheap place you... once you get there very affordable super wonderful yep. atmosphere for sure and tell me about your flumps my flumps, my flumps. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it turns out the one more breaking piece of news, uh, the flump is coming to the Neverwinter MMO. I was very pleased uh, when I just kind of clicked this link to see, oh, okay, what are they putting into the next lockbox? And it was this little flump companion uh, staring at me. So now you can have a flump 
journey alongside your dudes and i will have to of course do this so i will spend all of the saved up currencies and whatever stupidities are in these kinds of games and i will chuck them at this problem until i have a flump companion trust me i will <laughs> burn every credit i have stored in the game <laughs> till i get me one of these gorgeous looking flump companions so you can see the link in the show notes to view it in all of its glory it looks amazing so i honestly i had only like written to each uh mmo developer's uh personal address you know eight or ten times so i don't you know <laughs> i don't know where the you know it's clearly it was a, it was a large fan feedback i'm sure Right. You standing outside their home. Outside their house with a big poster. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And now we will get to our main topic here on Mastering Dungeons, which is 5e Revisited. And we have been looking at all the chapters of the Player's Handbook, and we have dove and tumbled and crawled and scratched, but we've gotten our way through the first nine chapters. And now we get to chapter 10, which is spellcasting. So if you're watching us for the first time, you should be aware that we have been doing this because it's been about 10 years since the first public playtest of 5e D&D Next was uh, released. About eight years now since the release of the first starter set. So Teos and I wanted to take a look back at the game, see where it was, where it is, and maybe where it's going. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to spellcasting, where magic permeates the worlds of D&D and most often appears in the form of a spell. So let's 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 talk about what D&D is and what the game tells us it is. The game and the designers of the game have told us that D&D is an exception-based game where the rules tell you what you can and can't do until another rule comes along and provides an exception to that. So guess what? You can't cast spells <laughs> Unless you have a class feature or a feat or a magic item or some other vessel through which you can cast spells. And so when we when we talk about spellcasting, uh, that's that's what spellcasting is. It's this huge exception yeah. to this rule of how you can, interact with the world particularly with combat with damage yeah that's, that's a good point that it really it's an it's like an exception to the entire game right like like it's it's like mm -hmm. you get to this chapter and it's like nope we're changing this all now yep everything changes we're going to add a bunch of new rules in order to uh facilitate this spell casting into our game so as we go through the chapter we and we'll answer a few questions. The first question is, what is a spell? Well, a spell is a discrete magical effect, a single shaping of the magical energies that suffuse the multiverse into a specific limited expression. Now, while this may seem to be just fluff text, it really shows something that may not be true in some other you know, fantasy sword and sorcery games that you or novels especially played, right or or, or novels or movies is that magic can't be used to just do anything at any time right it has to be wrestled into a shape that is limited in how it is used what it can do um, so you can't just say 
I use magic to do this thing that I want to do, mm -hmm. as you might be able to do in a fate game that uses magic. Yeah. Uh, so what are some of the things that constrain spells? We get a list, thankfully. Spell level. Uh, spells are level zero to nine. And the level of the spell does not correspond to the level of the caster. It is the the age old. Wait, I have levels in my class. The spells are different levels and I might be on a different level of a dungeon and I could have a different level of exhaustion. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 We've been wrestling with that one for, for years. Luckily monsters don't have levels. Uh, in this edition. They have, yeah. And they have challenge ratings, uh, but you could see how they could call it levels and we could really get messed up. Uh then we get the difference between known versus prepared spells. So before a spellcaster can use a spell, they must have the spell firmly fixed in mind or have access to the spell in a magic item. That's important to remember. Members of a few classes, including bards and, bards and sorcerers, have a limited set of spells they know that are always fixed in mind. The same thing is true of many magic-using monsters. Other spellcasters, like clerics and wizards, undergo a process of preparing spells. This process varies for different classes, as detailed in their descriptions. Uh, so if you're a first-time player and you're just sitting down and reading all of this, uh, yeah. I've been playing since AD&D days and reading this sort of, I don't get what this means. Right. It, it's not being tell it's not telling me if I sit down and play what any of this actually means. And, and yeah, um, it's, it's a super confusing thing. If you've ever trained like taught a person how to play a spellcaster, and you first have to imagine that you've taught them everything else, right? Mm -hmm. How to make attacks and saves and skills and all those things. And then you say, by the way, your character is special. You cast spells and you're a wizard. And you and here are your known spells. And you need to decide which of those known spells you know. And you have this many of each of the levels. So go ahead and do that now. By the way, the player's handbook's here. This will take you about a half hour of reading. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Right? I mean, so, it's just a big ass. And so then you use spell then you use spell slots to cast the spells that you have prepared. Now you now you know more. Mm -hmm. But you can't cast those with your spell slots. You can only cast the ones that you've actually prepared. And, but if and, you're playing yeah. this other type of play character, then you wouldn't have to worry about that. You would just yeah. you know, have these spells always prepared, kind and of. I, and I guess I have to ask, you know, Sean, what, what do you make of all that? You know, since some of what we're doing here is, is saying, you know, how would we change this? Like, aspects of this have been around, have been around the game forever, you know, it is really complicated. What would you like to see change here? I just want it simplified so everyone does it the same way. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think, especially in, in third edition, they tried to do something, the developers, I always try to say what my pronouns mean. <laughs> they, being the developers, tried to, tried to differentiate between a wizard and a sorcerer. And the way they did that was wizards have a greater range of spells at their disposal. So they are more utilitarian 
based where sorcerers have a much limited set of spells but they don't have to worry about all of that memorizing and and they just they do the they're going to cast the same spell over and over and over and over and over again with the same limited set of spells whereas the wizard can do all of these other cool things and it was a good goal mm -hmm. and i think even in third edition it wasn't terrible uh but it led to some confusion and then whenever you have something confusing and you try to move it forward to a different rule set you you end up trying to make it all work together and often it would be better with some sort of simplification and i, and I think one of the things that really felt uh, like a major component of the gameplay in third edition was that as a wizard you had the luxury of memorizing a number of spells that were um tool-based they're they're utilitarian right so uh you know fly is an example but also uh you know anything that's locating stuff right for let's detect magic or or anything else but there were there were a lot more of these types of spells that you could use to sort of discern what's happening um handle situations right create a bridge of force create illusions you know that are not just attack spells but when you were a sorcerer you didn't have you had so few spell slots that a lot of it ended up being attack oriented or you're maybe an enchanter focus you know but you're doing this kind of taking out targets with my spells and you might take one or two small things that are utilitarian or defensive but you you couldn't have that toolkit available and and what the wizard then wrestled with is which tools do I choose, right? Which toolkit spells do I choose? Um, because once you use them, they were gone. And what third edition did that uh, upended that a bit was they had a magic item called the Pearl of Power. And hmm. the Pearl of Power let a wizard regain their spell from a specific slot. And that almost made them a sorcerer. <laughs> so the right. edition almost undid itself, right? But those are all these kinds of things that, I mean, it makes me think of the question we started our, at the top of our show, right? With, you know, how do you design death saves? This is that sort of like, how do you design spellcasters? Because it's, you want the rich, rich intricacy of this menu of spells. And mm -hmm. you, I think, also want the idea of toolkits and, oh, I'm going to the ice cavern. Let's memorize cool things for that situation. Like, that's a neat concept. But the gameplay mm -hmm. of it and the time consumption of it can be really tough. And what is it that players today, most players, right? Not the player you know or the player I am, but you know that most players right. want out of this experience is a really it's a tough thing to to address. Yeah, and part of it goes back to the question that I probably bring up at least once an episode, which is you know what do you want the game to be? Mm -hmm. Do you want the game to be a resource management thing? Because there are ways to solve this problem, which is rituals. Mm -hmm. And and fifth edition sort of does that where you can cast a ritual, it takes longer. So you don't have to memorize the this. And and fourth edition did the same thing, right? They mm -hmm. there were rituals and then there were spells. And but that only works if there is some sort of um balance what's the drawback of taking the time to do the ritual instead of casting it out of a slot? If there is no drawback, then never bother memorizing a spell that could be a ritual because you will always have the 10 minutes or however long you need to take to cast it. Right. 
and and there's no drawbacks so uh so even that needs to be taken into account when you go through the process of trying to figure out how to best create this game for the most uh most users yeah that that are going yeah. to be partaking yeah absolutely it's it's such a tough one um and and it's like i love a lot of the intricacies I, I like i really love the sort of third edition way that spells work out other than pearls of power i really like that idea of selecting and thinking what do i need for this dungeon but then it is also terrible when you show up and you can't use like three of your spells because say everything you you know everything's immune to the things you happen to choose <laughs> right and with third edition like you right. know if i took fireball twice uh, and I don't need like fire doesn't damage anything. Well, I have two slots that are just wasted, right? And um, and, and so so fifth edition gives you a lot more of of, of um, it still uses a similar concept of choosing it, but you can uh, choose any number of spells to cast. It doesn't have to be a certain number of times. You can so you can reallocate those points as desired. Um, right. But but I, I you know it does seem like one D and D is is starting to move more to the the sort of sorcerer type model for everybody uh, to give you more flexibility, which is interesting. Yeah, cantrips were made to mm -hmm. solve this problem. Oh, you you have only fire spells and you're fighting a fire elemental. Well, use your cantrips to to do these other things, and you'll you'll have these spell slots later. But again, the resource management pacing part of the game says, well, if this is the only big combat we have and I'm just sitting here doing cantrips, I feel I feel like I'm not doing as much as the other players. Um, so me saving these spell slots doesn't do any good. Um, a solution would be to allow these spell slots to be turned into more powerful cantrips. Maybe not as powerful as... Uh, a full spell but also more powerful than than the the cantrip that you're relying on i boost my cantrip by by a d by one die by using this spell mm -hmm. slot instead yeah you could do uh, and again as we said at the beginning of the show you need to think about all of that yeah, what does yeah. it do how yeah. does it change things be uh, because but it's just you know, one thing off the top of my head I always worry that that cantrips in fifth edition are a little too strong, um, and too, there are too many classes where the cantrip is is just so good, and the only reason you don't use it is because well you need AOE or you need to impose you know a, a level of control on your target, so you're choosing some of your other options, uh, or you need something defensive. But but you know just toll the dead is so good that unless you put up spirit guardians, you're sort of done, you know, and, and spiritual weapon, and that's it. <laughs> I guess too much like that. And I think that's that's a that's a dangerous place to be. We're a little too much where the, the dial favors cantrips and, and you know eldritch blast, things like that. Um where there's just not enough variety. So I think that if I if 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 someone were to say to me, hey, let's make uh that you can burn a spell slot to do a cantrip, I'd say cool, but I'd rather it feel different. Like I don't know, you're adding an element or something that would lead to description and the feeling of it not just being, you know, I told the dead harder, mm -hmm. but do something with it, you know, a little differently, right? right? Um, yeah, but but those are all hard because now you're complicating things. And so maybe that's not what you want to do. Yep. But I, th but I think that I would want to look at cantrips uh, we, oh. and, 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 
and figure out how to dial them back a little bit. I think they're, they're a little too easy for classes to rely upon them. And I don't think that was the intention of it. The intention was when I don't have something cooler to do, this will work okay. Not it is the coolest or most effective thing to do. Uh, then we get a description of spell slots. So regardless of how many spells a character knows or prepares, they can cast only a limited number of spells before resting. And that's what spell slots are there for. Mm -hmm. um, again, resource management, uh, it goes back to the roots of the game in, in that way. And are they even necessary? Maybe, maybe not. Um, how many times past third level have you as a player of a full caster not you know a mm -hmm. paladin or a ranger but a full caster run out of spell slots in, in the day no it doesn't happen much and, and it used to happen more like in third edition at, at big events big adventures that were you know hard challenges you would see people run out of all of their spells uh it didn't happen a lot but it could happen and, and certainly your good ones could be used up but i feel like fifth edition has too many spell slots uh and 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 even on say my ranger like i i seldom use up everything and my cleric oh it's a billion spells that i can choose from and, and and use and so so you don't really you may not have exactly what you want at a particular moment but you don't really tend to run out e even when you're in a dungeon situation um and so i would probably want to look at that and address it a bit uh fourth edition tried to obviously do this right it tried to really look at what if i take spells and i make them powers like everybody else and you have some that are encounter and so that's very easy you use it once and that's it until the next encounter and some are dailies and so you got to decide whether you want to hit with that big daily and use that up and you won't have it until you take a long rest and then you had your you know you know your at wills that you could do all the time and that was i think in some ways it, it addressed this question really well it had other drawbacks but it certainly did that resource side of things it was all very clear to everybody who played yeah. the game how that was working yeah it turned it turned everybody into a caster it right. that was the, the other problem casters they <laughs> yeah yeah it yeah. really did that and fifth edition retreats well, to that right it goes for back some it was time. a problem well yeah yeah but fifth edition goes back to that idea that that your melee classes you know which really basically your non-heavy spellcasters are usually focusing on a target and the casters are the ones that can do larger area things right the lightning bolt the fireball the stinking cloud that kind of stuff uh whereas fourth edition had sort of so changed the nature of it to where you would do a cloud of dagger attacks and you would do a you know burst of steel and what you know these kinds of ideas where, where almost everybody felt very castery and that was not always great for 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 everybody Right, depending on who it was, whether you like that or not. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I personally like the differentiation between spellcaster and melee. You just want to, or, or you know, non-spellcaster, but you want to not have it feel like the keys to winning the game are based on having spell slots and that the spellcasters are stronger, especially at higher level. We get a sidebar about casting an armor. And we are told that you must be proficient with the armor you are wearing if you want to cast a spell. Otherwise, you are too distracted and physically hampered by your armor for spellcasting. Uh, this means, just, just so you know, 
Uh, if you have a wand that you can cast from and you are wearing armor that you are not proficient with, you cannot use that wand to cast spells. Uh, it probably never, ever comes up, but right. just something that uh, they don't differentiate casting a spell with, uh, you know, with your class abilities from mm -hmm. casting it through items. And one one thing that I then would they, do around armor. About, oh, go ahead. Yeah, just one thing I would do through with armor is the druid has this whole I wear you know non metal armor, and Jeremy Crawford has said that this is a preference. It's not actually a rule, <laughs> and I would make that a rule, right? Like I don't want some druid saying, actually, I'm totally fine with you know I don't share the preference of my brethren. I'll wear metal armor. Like it's either a restriction or it's not, and and I I think it being you know preference isn't is i would tighten that up yeah is is uh you know is a hard shell not uh not is is iron not natural teos <laughs> is steel not natural um those are it excellent nature, questions Teos. back it's in not, the day it's back it's in medieval alive, times but pretty natural yeah. yeah yeah exactly uh so we, we hear about cantrips. A cantrip is a spell that can be cast at will without using a spell slot and without being prepared in advance. Um, a cantrip spell level is zero mm -hmm. for whatever that means. Because uh, well, there can be mathematical rules, things I'm that not, say I'm, burn a spell slot of a certain yeah. level, add that. Add right? your spell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, so that's that's pretty straightforward. Um, rituals, a ritual version of a spell takes 10 minutes longer to cast than normal. It does not expend a spell slot, which means that it cannot be cast at a higher level. Um, and to cast a spell as a ritual, a spellcaster must have a feature that grants the ability to, to do so. For most, it's a ritual caster ability um, within their class, but you can get it from other from other ways. Uh, clerics and druids have such a feature. Uh, the caster must also have the spell prepared or on their list of spells known unless the character's ritual feature specifies otherwise as the wizards does. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be a little different for each class based on what the ritual, uh, their ritual casting feature says, but it's basically adding 10 minutes to cast a spell that is castable as a ritual and this is something we've seen one DD start to tweak I, I suspect that everybody will be able to ritual cast is probably where we're going to end up and, and that's probably not a terrible idea i think that even like in fourth edition i remember thinking like why why is this particular class unable to take 10 minutes to do detect magic like what what is it about you that prevents that and 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 don't we just want to you know and i think it's because they're trying it's really it's a mechanical thing it's a design thing of trying to limit uh, who can do what, how many times, and 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 you're also trying to say the nature of the magic maybe prevents that, but but I think that we can also feel quite capable thematically doing it the other way around, and so it's fine to extend it more widely. So, so here's a question for you, Teos. Mm -hmm. I have a wand of fire that can cast fireballs. Can I, if I have the ritual caster ability from a wizard, say? cast it cast fireball ritually from my from my wand if fireball was a spell that allowed ritual you're saying yeah, yes yes it's sort of like a wand to detect magic can you do it without spending the wand 
without spending that charge. Charge. Ah, oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. It doesn't really say in the rules something that it doesn't confine it to. It's not, it doesn't have to be a spell that you have. Well, it must have it prepared or on the list of spells known. So, so you don't have to have it prepared, which would prevent a wand possibly, but not entirely. So, uh, yeah, that's a great question. I haven't had that come up. Hmm. Okay. I, I, yeah, I, I'm sure it probably wouldn't for a lot of folks, but I was just, you know, since we're... Yeah, I mean, I would default to here. no, but I don't know um, on what grounds I would do it other than yeah. just because I think it should work that way. Hmm. Right. Uh, then we get a big section on casting a spell. This section is much like the section that talks about combat, but casting a spell involves a lot of steps, just like targeting a creature and then making your attack roll might take some steps. Um, we who are experienced with the game might take these steps for granted because we're experienced players and we just sort of know it by by heart. But it's good to look at them through the eyes of a new player or a game developer. So you sit down and you're playing D&D and you decide your character is about to cast a spell. What are the things that you need to take into account? First is casting time. Is the spell you're casting castable as an action, as a bonus action, as a reaction? Is there a longer uh, time duration that it needs to be cast? If it's longer than one action or an action, um, it takes your action each round to cast that spell. And you must maintain concentration for the entire time. If your concentration is broken, uh, you lose that casting but you don't lose that slot mm -hmm. uh, what else is involved in casting a spell well the the bonus actions um they say here that you you know you provided you haven't already taken a bonus action you can cast that spell you can't cast another spell during the same turn except for a cantrip with a casting time of one action and i recall this was something that was mm -hmm. often missed in the early days of 5e where folks would gladly you know Cure that you'd see this all the time. Cure wounds and healing word, right? That that would I, I saw a lot of that, and every now and then I still see it. But but you know it takes a while for someone to say, "Wait, actually, I don't think you can do that." See this thing here? It has you know it, right. the other one, the non bonus would have to be a cantrip. Like oh, all right, and and that's one of those that just comes up a lot. Yep. Um, I think you know reactions I would often is, catch is one of those trying things. to sneak it by. Yeah, I would. I would see players try to sneak it by by doing the action first mm -hmm. and then say, oh, and as a bonus action, I will cast this spell. I'm like, well, wait a second. The the original spell you cast was not a cantrip, so therefore that bonus action <laughs> cannot happen. Oh, tricky players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the reactions, yep. I think, are pretty black and white. It, they sound confusing when you first read them, but it, you know, it really is that sometimes it'll be a reaction. Well, that means you can do it. The trickiest thing here in terms of spells, because this is a little away from the reaction wording that's elsewhere, is you can cast it on your round as well. And that's something that I think a lot of people when they're first playing 5e don't understand from a spell casting perspective is it's not just, you know, when someone attacks you, it could be on your turn. So you provoke opportunity attack and you could use shield as your reaction to defend yourself from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that came up. That comes up a lot with counterspell, obviously. Yes. So 
you can cast a spell, someone counterspells your spell, you can use your reaction. Even though you are casting another spell at the same time, you can use your reaction to counterspell the other uh, NPC's counterspell. Yeah. Uh, then we hear about range. Um, when a tar when a spell is cast, you have to figure out its range and if the target of your spell is within that range. Um, most spells, they have feet as the expression of their ranges. Um, some spells can target only one creature, including yourself, that you touch. So you have to be within touching range of that creature. Um, other spells affect only you. Um, these spells have the range of self. Some spells create cones or lines of effect or spheres that originate or cylinders that originate uh, from you and have a range of self indicating that the origin point of the spell effect must include you. Um, once a spell is cast, its effects aren't limited by its range unless the spell tells you that its range remains limited. That's interesting. Ooh how they try to make it kind of simple, but then they're like, but see this other area later. Um, so it, it yeah. which is probably fine because it, you know, this captures the very basics of it, but then yeah, you, you get into cones and things like that and it does get far more complicated, but it is interesting as you noted last time we were talking about combat that they don't break out into the extensive diagrams that we would see in say fourth edition with all those images and miniatures and showing sort of where everything would be. Uh, this is trying to keep it as simple as it can by just giving you some basic examples up front. Mm -hmm. uh, then we are told that spells have components, verbal, somatic, and material. So if a, if a spell has a verbal component, you must be able to speak aloud in order to cast it. So if you're gagged or if you are in an area of silence, you cannot cast a spell with a verbal component. Uh, somatic means movement. So if you are trying to cast a spell with a somatic component, you must have a free hand um, to perform the gestures. Free. What does free mean? Who knows? Uh, uh -huh. But obviously tied up, probably not. Could you cast it behind your back, moving your fingers? Apparently well, not. And the one that came up is, you know, what if I'm a cleric and I hold a mace in one hand and I hold my shield in the other? Am I able to cast spells? And the answer was no. <laughs> People go, wait a minute. That's literally what I'm supposed to be walking around doing. Like, well, take this feat. Uh, and th so those, yeah. you know, those are issues, right? Or, well, can I just put my holy symbol on my shield? Yeah, maybe. You know, it's th that that kind of thing, I think, needs some thinking through. Yeah. Or if I were doing a new edition. And I would even want to look back, and I don't know how you feel about this, Sean, but I sort of feel like back in AD&D, when I read spells, there was a sort of romantic notion to this of the cool gestures that were being done and the neat materials that were involved. And I had to procure those. And so it all worked into creating a, a situation where it's like, I literally knew that I needed a glass rod and what is it felt that you use for like lightning bolt, you know, and I would have to get right. these things and I'd have to get bat guano for my fireball. And, and, you know, I would worry about this and I would spend time getting these things. And then when I use them, that was in my brain. And then even in third edition, you know, things like, oh, I'm, I'm grappling the spellcaster. 
So does that spell require a somatic gesture? Because I'm, I'm, I've got them grappled. They can't. Oh, okay, they can't use the spell, you know. Oh, that one's verbal only, so they can. You know, this was sort of part of the game, and I feel like in 5th edition, none of these things really matter anymore. And so if they don't yeah. matter, and we don't, they're not in our brain, they're not occupying that space, even if it says somewhere that Bakwano is used for fireball, if it's not really in anyone's brain, what is this all doing here? Am I wrong in that? You, you are not wrong. And the, the, the question isn't whether you're right or wrong, but the question is, should it or shouldn't it matter? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, we see what, what they did with 5th edition, right? We don't want new players learning the game to have to worry about how much bat guano they have on them, uh, <laughs> literally or figuratively. And so we're not going to, so we're going to make components work differently, material components work differently, but we need to give a nod to the, the nostalgia group, right? The players that remember back guano from AD and D days. So we're going to add it in there uh, just, just, just as a nod. So it doesn't really mean anything, but you know what DM, if your players are all about the back guano, we can you can you can make them go find it but we don't want to bother the new players with this so let's just keep it between us and you know sometimes i'm okay with that uh and sometimes i just wish they would dump it all together mm -hmm. and then sometimes there might be a thing where i wish they would keep and mm -hmm. but it, that's all personal preference um and if we're going to build a game that people off the street can learn to play quickly and easily. We need to think more in terms of the let's not worry about these things or let's make a basic version of the game and let's make an advanced version <laughs> of the game. And if you are into counting, you know, how many liters of bat guano you have migrate in this direction. <laughs> Figuratively or <laughs> literally it's up to you <laughs> yes uh -huh. exactly because in these rules the material uh components are told a character can use a component pouch or a spell casting focus in place of the component specified for a spell if a cost is indicated the character must have that specific component before the spell can be cast um, and if a spell states that the material component is consumed then the character must provide this component for each casting of the spell and a spellcaster must have a hand free to access the material components or to hold a spellcasting focus, uh, but it can be the same hand that you use to perform your somatic uh, components. So if your shield is your holy symbol, then you have the free hand mm -hmm. uh, to, to cast the spell because you are holding the focus in your hand. Right. Yep. Uh so yeah, I mean it's it's all there. It's right. so it's you, if you want to be a D &D. paladin with a two-handed weapon. Now we're gonna get into some. You, you better hope your sword is your holy symbol. Get your get your holy avenger out. <laughs> oh boy. All right. So some some other things that we are going to have when we have to consider when we cast our spell is duration. Um, is it instantaneous? If it is, then it happens and you don't need to worry about it anymore. Um, is it ongoing? If so, how long is it ongoing? And do you have to concentrate to keep it as an ongoing effect? 
And we've talked about concentration before. Um, if you take damage or if something comes up that could disrupt your uh, concentration, like standing on the deck of a ship in a storm, then you need to make constitution saving throws in order to maintain that concentration. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, actually interesting targets. with the example you gave, oh. um, you know, the DC equals 10 or half the damage you take. Um, and, it, and it doesn't really, whichever number is higher, and it doesn't really say, you know, that if, if, a, if something breaks, is threatening to break your concentration that isn't damage, it doesn't really have guidance for that, right? So if, if I say make a concentration yep. check for the, the uh, being on deck of a ship, um, I think an adventure would probably just say, well, and the DC is X, but, uh, but it doesn't really say mm -hmm. that here, which I think is interesting. In um, fact, the, the example here of Storm Tossed Ship is DC 10 Constitution Saving Throw. Yeah. It doesn't say it could be higher, you know, so but one would presume right, that it can be. Right. I think most people would just default to that 10 unless it was an extreme, right? Then you go back to, you know, difficult, easy, very right. difficult, et cetera, et cetera, and just sort of make it up from there. Uh, Targets, you get to, your spells will target a certain number of creatures or things. Uh, so you need a clear path to the target and we get information about targeting yourself. Uh, any thoughts on any of that, Teos? Um, I like that it says here that the default is that unless a spell says it has a perceptible effect, a creature might not know it was targeted by a spell at all. So crackling lightning is obvious, but an attempt to read a creature's thoughts typically goes unnoticed unless the spell says otherwise. And I like that because in previous editions, it was often really hard to figure out whether someone should know that a spell was cast. And it was a thing that DMs would often be like, oh, no, they feel it. They know. And so this here says, well, the default is it's not noticed. And if it should be noticed, the spell will say that. I, I like that approach to it. Mm -hmm. um, and for targeting yourself, uh, if a spell targets a creature of your choice, you could choose yourself unless the creature must be hostile or specifically a creature other than you. If you are in the area of effect of the spell you cast, then you can target or sometimes must target yourself. Um, so let's talk about area of effects. We have a cone, we have a cube, we have a cylinder, we have a line, we have a sphere. And as Teos mentioned earlier, in old editions, you would get the grid laid out to show you exactly what squares on a grid would be affected by each of these things. We don't get that in the player's handbook. I mm -hmm. think we do in the Dungeon yeah, Master's the Guide. DMG has it. Um, but, but what's interesting about this is when you play Theater of the Mind, um, by saying that something is a 10-foot cube, you sort of you either assume that you have to fill a square completely in order to affect that square. Otherwise you get character, you get players or DMS putting it halfway on a square and then saying, well, since you are, since this cube actually goes half over this square, um, you are in that area of effect, which sort of, twists the way it's meant to be used mm -hmm. but since we don't see the squares here uh 
yeah, it's it's this the game doesn't force you to use grids or right. locations, but it kind of does by bringing this up. Yeah, and I think that's something that's that a lot of people have noticed during play is that it, it by by sort of not saying it actually makes it hard. It it it, it leave it should say something here. It should tell you how do you adjudicate these things when you're playing theater of the mind and or and and even in the dmg to say so which it doesn't there either it's like it's one thing to point out you know what a size x cone looks like on a grid that's helpful but you know when i'm not on the grid how should i adjudicate such things right and 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 that gets into different questions of how to reward a player for a spell slot that's being used and you know how powerful is this effect that they're looking for? And are you going to make it totally feel like they wasted their action? Are you letting down a player? Are you, you know, are you being or coming across as being a DM that's just being hard on them? Like, oh, you can only get you know one. Otherwise, you have to get your friend. And you know, really, like they're trying to do something neat. And you know, and you've already started casting it, so that's it. Sorry, you know, where are you going to put it down? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. We would see that a lot yeah. back in the day. And so, so I think adjudication sure. information would be really nice to have mm-hmm. even in the player's handbook, but especially in the DMG. Yeah. And one thing that you can do is if it's, if it's not clear to everyone what the situation is, give the players the, a choice, but give them, give a little risk or give a, a, you know, Oh, there's four goblins here and the fighters next to them. You can get three goblins easily. You want to get that fourth goblin? Well, give give me a, an arcana check or give me a <laughs> dexterity saving throw. And if you f- make it, you can get that fourth goblin and the fighter's fine. If you fail, you do get the fourth goblin, but the fighter's also in there. And yeah. it sort of gamifies that. But always try to be generous, I would say, unless your players are absolutely looking for the the roughest game possible and then obviously give the player what they want um players what they want mm-hmm. but you know it's it's a fun way to sort of let the dice decide um and some fun stories might come out of it as well for sure for sure uh then we learn about saving throws um we hear all about saving throws uh in previous sections so nothing has changed there uh, DC is generally eight plus your spellcasting ability modifier plus your proficiency bonus plus any special modifiers. You got to love those special modifiers. Um, <laughs> some spells require attack rolls, and there then you would make the attack roll with the spellcasting ability plus your proficiency bonus. Um, and most spells that require an attack have range. Uh, sometimes the range might be touch, and other times the range will be given in feet and if you were within five feet of a hostile creature that isn't capacit that isn't incapacitated and that you can see you have disadvantage just like if you were using a ranged weapon um one thing about saving throws i want to say is it was interesting that in fourth edition there were there was only one sort of saving throw there were death saves but then there was a saving throw to end an ongoing effect but there weren't really many modifiers to that. Mm-hmm. It was just a DC 10 roll of D20. You know, 10 or higher, you succeed and the effect ends. Ten, uh, nine or lower, the effect continues. And p- 
people often say, especially, you know, game designers or people who think in terms of game design will say, right, I, I play a, a wizard and I wish I could roll attack rolls like the, mm. everyone else does. I don't want saving throws. And I understand that, right? I, I understand letting the players roll the dice. Yeah, DMs like to roll the dice too sometimes. I'm fine not rolling one die the whole time I play. I'll let everybody do, roll the dice for me if they want. But, you know, I can understand that. But to change that comes with baggage, as we talked about at the beginning of the episode. Um, you know, because what would happen in fourth edition where rather than you cast a spell, the creature you're targeting makes a saving throw. It's you were attacking them with an attack roll. Now you could be attacking their armor class, but more likely than not, you would be attacking their their willpower, mm -hmm. which was the better better of their uh, intelligence and wisdom, or uh, fortitude or reflex, uh, reflex, mm -hmm. fortitude, reflex. Right. Uh, I, I may have gotten that wrong, so so bear with me. But so. What what would happen then is with only three things for players to have to worry about on in terms of how easy they were to hit, it would be easier for them to bump up those defenses. Um, and so that turned into a sort of an unintended consequence was that uh, players could game that a little bit more. <laughs> and I remember when it comes to saving throws, uh, a time in third edition when we went into this warehouse and we were surrounded by gnomes and this wizard says, do y'all have good conseys? And we're like, yeah, you know, the two guys that were inside, we were dwarves. We're like, yeah, we've got good. Okay. So he drops, uh, what was it? Soundburst on us, which then he told us mm -hmm. he had super specialized. So he has a really high saving uh -huh. throw and he's focused on whatever this type of spell is. And so we both fail our saving throws and the DM just proceeds to roll nothing but high rolls. So all of these gnomes who were mm -hmm. rogues are not stunned. We are stunned and we get completely murdered by these gnomes. And we're all just laughing. We're like, yep. you need to define what a good saving throw is because we know we did not have a optimized saving throw to, to give up. And so, yeah, we, yep. we died. Oh yeah, that I think over the years and specifically fifth edition, the friendly fire uh, deaths have. Mm -hmm. I've had more friendly fire deaths as a DM than I have of actually deaths of of characters. Yeah, um, it reminds me of the Grimlock story where where our wizard says, "Well, I'm going to cast a spell on everyone, including the Grimlocks. Is that okay with everyone?" And we're like, "Okay, yeah, this is a tough fight. Get the Grimlocks." So he casts color spray. Um, on on the party and the Grimlocks. Guess guess what does not use sight and therefore is totally immune to color spray. That would be Grimlocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so, great. Yep, that's a, that's painful. That, the that's the final... kind of thing where when it gets oh, explained, yeah. you know, that player's just like, oh, well, that's really my bad, and everybody's yeah. like, yes, it is. Well, this player is infamous for doing ex all the wrong things at all the wrong times, and we always let let them because we we we're all about the the, the hijinks you know, stupidity. Uh -huh. uh, oh, the hijinks! So yeah, yeah. Um, and the final little part here of spellcasting chapter ten is combining magical effects, which just tells us that if different spells uh, 
the effects of different spells add together while the durations overlap. So uh, the effect of the same spell cast multiple times don't combine. Mm -hmm. So if you cast Bless from two different clerics on the same target, you only get the benefit once, um, but you take the longer duration. Right. Uh, or if someone gave temporary you temporary hit points. Hit points. And other... mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So uh, that's that's the final bit that we get on spellcasting. And the next chapter is all about all of those funky spells that you can cast. Yeah, you know. So anything two... else you want to talk about with chapter yeah. 10? Yeah, two sidebars here. One is the Weave of Magic, um, which is interesting that talks about what constitutes magic. And I'm glad to add this here to sort of explain it. It is very Forgotten Realms because it's the Weave of Magic. And so it's inspired primarily from that. Um, and, and just that concept of what it is that spells are coming from and how they interact with things like detect magic or identify that this is glimpsing the weave, dispel magic smooths out the weave, anti-magic field makes the weave go around the place. You know, so those are some kind of neat concepts that I appreciate having. Um, there's also a sidebar that does what are the schools of magic and talks through them, which is helpful. Again, you know, we said this before, but I I always need a cheat sheet for this. Um, but I appreciate having that information in this chapter because it is important color to the game to understand the the types of magic, where it's all coming from. I think that's kind of neat. And that is chapter 10. Uh, we have burned our way through this book and we will continue to do so unless we are interrupted by something more pressing. So... Thank you so much for everyone who's out there listening. We really love your support. Uh, we hope that you are learning stuff, that you're entertained and occasionally horrified uh, by by our podcasting. The and right amount of those horrified. who are really That's... really horrified. Those who are really horrified, they back us on Patreon. Um, so thank you to our Master of Dungeon supporters. Um, we give a special shout out to our Master of Realms supporters in our show notes. And you Masters of the Multiverse patrons, well, guess what? Thank you, and here you go. We have Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Robin Dermy, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Go Lions. Travis Lee, Adrian Marquez at Post Fiction RPG Audio, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Falcon Neal, Chance Russo at Dragon Russo, Krishna Simonse, Joe Tyler, James Walton, Graham Ward, and John Wilson. Thank you for your Master of the Universe support. You could become a patron of the show. Yes, you, you listening out there. If you like the show, we would love it if you would give us give us a little bit of monetary love. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash masteringdnd. If you do so, you can talk to us on Patreon, ask these questions like Chappy Thoughts did, uh, talk to us directly. Uh, if you can't support us monetarily, that's okay. Uh, if you leave a review on Apple Podcast or via whatever means you listen to the podcast, that helps us, you know, get the get the word out there. We appreciate that. Uh, you can also subscribe to YouTube and see our beautiful faces each and every week. 
So Teos, where can people find you? Ooh, find me at alphastream.org. There you can reach all my YouTube and other efforts. I'm also on Mastodon as alphastream at dice.camp. You can find me on Twitter, though I'm primarily on Mastodon. What about you, Sean? Where are you hiding these days? I am boldly strolling through Twitter at Sean Merwin. Uh, the podcast continues to be on Twitter at Mastering D&D and also on Mastodon at Dice Camp. I am on Mastodon too. I think it's at tabletop.social. Uh, you can always join our community and ask questions on Patreon or you can leave comments on the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. So now, Teos, we know all about spellcasting and what are we going to do now? Well, we're going to get to the real meaning of spellcasting because I'm going to make a character that's going to be a uh, wearing a whole fisherman getup and they're going to just have a rod and reel and cast those spells. Ah, I, I see what you did there. Yeah. It, yeah. You're not going to pour, pour, pour metal into a mold and cast your spells that way? Ooh, that's, you know, that's the Dwarven Forge approach, I think. Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's mm -hmm. really good, too. I like that. Both of those are excellent. We recommend them highly for everyone's table out there. Mm -hmm. Or at the at the bottom of your each of your table legs, you could have all your forecasters there. Or um, you interview people because you're doing a casting call, and you you interview all the spells, and you decide mm -hmm. which spells you're going to cast, playing the role of Fireball. Okay, I think we're. I'm going to end here because, yeah, 